I want to read a little bit um, today, and I want to, uh, from a, what would be a familiar passage, but I want to read it from the message translation. It's 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it. If you haven't, if you've been to a wedding, <laughs> you've probably heard it. Uh, but specifically, I want to speak on this subject, and, and I want to talk about uh, the culture of true vine um, and culture of honor. And I said, as I was praying this morning, I've been praying the last few weeks, um, one of the things that we'd like to establish here is that whether you're a one or a hundred, we want you to feel honored and welcome here. And uh, we wanna, don't want to show preference um, because of age or race or culture or anything like that. We just, just want to create that here. So subtitle this is Trust Steadily, Hope Unswervingly, and Love Extravagantly. So let's read. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rushy gate, rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. It's funny to me because we focus a lot on these things, and I think that's a good thing. We focus on uh, Revelation. We've almost out, we almost get to where we try to out-revelate each other. You ever been to those conferences where those guys just try to out-revelate each other? And by the end, you're just so full. The only thing you want to do is, is, just, is just throw up. You're like, my God. You know, and it, it, I'm not necessarily saying, I mean, obviously, revelation is good. Revelation, the revealing, you know more about God. But I don't want to just know more about him. I want to become like him. You know, I know about I was going to say President Trump. I won't say that. I know about, let's say, George Bush, but I do not know him, and he does not know me, at least not yet. Um, I don't want to just know about God, and I'm tired of people talking to me about what he's like. I want to know him, and to know him and to become a part of who he is and to take on his nature is to love, period. You can love. Did you know you can know nothing about God and love and be more like God than some preachers that know everything about him but that don't love? If I, speak with God's, if I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries, and I make everything plain as day, and if I have the faith to say to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything, to own, everything that I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but if I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. It doesn't strut. Jacob. <laughs> doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. It isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. It's funny that he goes right into comparing uh, Revelation 
and speaking of mountains to be removed, he almost compares it to infancy, and he talks about maturity is when fullness of love comes. We think that it's opposite. We think that if we're able to say to someone that's sick, your heart be healed, and that happens, we must be spiritually mature. No. Spiritual maturity is being able to love when you're not loved back. Spiritual maturity is taking on such a nature of love that it, 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 it just it flows from you. It's not, it's not to get something back. Love has no ulterior motive. If you love someone trying to get something back from them, you're not loving them, you're trying to manipulate them. We don't see things clearly yet. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears. Now, I wish you would preach this, Paul. And the sun shines bright. I've been waiting for that one for about six months. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, say with me, for right now, until that completeness comes, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. Thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. I thank you that your scriptures are written and they become alive as your spirit breathes upon them and we're able to see them and bring them into our now and make it pragmatic for us. I just thank you for that, Lord. I thank you how the, the beautiful mystery of your word. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would use my mouth to speak your words, Father, that it would go into the hearts and the soil of the soul of everybody in here, Father, that it would bear fruit for your kingdom. Amen. This one of Apostle Paul's most famous of writing makes it clear the essence of Christian living. Not Christian living as cliche, but truly living with and through the heart of Jesus Christ himself. One of the most powerful quotes from this passage is when he says, there will come a time that we will see all things clearly. He prefaces that with the statement that we see things as though we're peering through fog. That's normally interpreted to mean something in the future when the consummation of all things take place. And we're all at once with him, and I do believe in such a day. But how can we apply this scripture to the here and now? Years ago, I discovered a reality that's helped me shape the way I do things. It's helped me when I counsel people. It's helped me in my relationship with my wife. It's helped me in my relationship with, with really everyone, specifically my wife and my children. And that is to understand anyone's why. And what I mean is we judge people based on what they do without having knowledge of maybe why they do what they do. And if we're always going around judging people or situations based on what happens to us, then most of the time it creates offense. But if we can understand why people respond the way they do, or in most cases why people react the way they do, even though it might not be a good thing, then I said something, I said something let me tag on to this. I said something at Steve Rich's church the other week. I said this 
And I heard the Lord tell me this years ago. He said, inside of every woman is a little girl. And inside of every man is a little boy. And if you can ever learn to speak to the little boy or the little girl inside of anyone, you can help them heal. Because most of the people that I come in contact with have some sort of uh, uh, a deficiency in identity. And it happens for various reasons. A lot of it is, I would say a greater portion of it is a broken relationship with their father or mother, but more, more than not, broken relationship with father. And if you have a broken relationship with fathers, you don't receive the fullness of your identity. It's hard to get that. It may take people years and years. And I've met people in their 60s and 70s that don't even know who they are because that thing that was supposed to, that's, listen, here's the job of fathers. Fathers, listen, it is your job to nature your child and to make sure they are secure and know their identity. It's your job. It is a responsibility. And many of us have not done that. Many of us uh, have been so insecure in our own identity that we don't have the, the wherewithal to know it's our job to make sure they're secure in theirs. And so what happens is generationally we raise people that don't know who they are and they react instead of respond. And they create problems instead of creating solutions. It's not a judgment to condemnation, it's just a, an observation, but it's true. Well, it gets really quiet when I talk like this. I think that's a good thing. I'm, I'm, more and more I'm trying to say, I think this is a good thing. And so what we do is we, we perpetuate this feeling of, of insecurity because we don't know who we are because we were raised by men who didn't know who they were. And so when that happens, it's easy for us to always become offended at everything. I mean, we live in the most offended generation that has ever been on the face of the earth. And it's easy for any of us to stand back and say, I'm so sick of this offended generation. And that's the what. What we really needed to say is, as leaders, as leaders of this movement that we call Christianity, is not what are they doing or what are they offended at, but why are they offended? And the why is almost always tied to a deficiency in their understanding of identity. We don't have, we, we, by and large, we don't have people speaking in churches about identity. And so because it, it's broken in the home, it's not spoken about in the church, everybody is offended out there. And what's worse is now that offense has crept into the church that everybody in the church is offended at everything that happens. I don't like the way that they do this, and I don't like the way they do that, and I can't believe that they did this, and I can't believe they didn't ask me to do that, and I wanted it this way, and they did it that way. And it, before long, I mean, it's just a big old bubble of nothingness, and, and it's, 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 it, you scarcely see the Spirit of God moving because it's so full of offense and so full of hardened hearts that if I were the Lord, I would sit back and say, whoa. And we preach revelation, and we preach about the finished work of the cross and, and all of the catchphrases, and it's good messages, but if it's not bringing transformation and people are still offended, then what good is it? If we don't do it and establish first a culture of love and a culture of honor where we say, look, it's just not just a saying, but if you're a hundred or if you're one, listen, that's why I have purposed. And I, it's, not just, it's not just me that does it, but I have purpose as long as I'm here in a position of leadership. If a child says, this is what the Holy Spirit says to me, we're going to give place to that child. What does it say to a child to say, no, you couldn't possibly have heard from the Lord. Go sit down. Let's let us adults do it. You've seen that. I've been to churches where they're not even allowed to move. I don't stay for very long when I see that. 
You let a child move and they jerk it up and sit down. Sit here and be still. Sit here and be still. Sit here and be still. And then when they're older and they want them to act in church, like, no, you may be still for so long, I have no interest anymore. And wonder what in the world's happened to the church and why the church doesn't have hands and feet and doing good things in the community. Well, you told them to sit and be still for so many years in what you call church that they have no interest in that. It's counterproductive. Oh, that was a tangent. Everybody's offended by everything. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. Focusing entirely on what is almost always going to lead to offense. And it will spread like a poisonous snake bite until ultimately it kills every living cell it comes in contact with. We've created a culture in our society where people actually look, I'm not kidding, for a reason to be offended. Pastor Paul, am I telling the truth? They look for a reason to be offended. I know people, and when I say I know them, I haven't heard of them, I know them, that scroll social media to find something to be offended about because they just need to respond to somebody about something. Some people do it without even knowing that they're doing it. A culture of offense will always choke out a culture of honor. Say it again, a culture of offense will always choke out a culture of honor. If we're trying to establish in your home, you try to establish a culture of honor, and everybody's always offended by everything, it, will, it won't last. In a church, if we try to establish a culture of honor where we, give, where we give preference and deference to other people and say, look, we want to hear you first. This is what the new covenant says. If a, if, a, if a preacher or a person or a prophet or whatever is speaking and the Lord speaks to someone else, it's okay for the first to hold his peace and let the second speak. And the reason that God allows for that is so that no one person gets the glory but that God gets the glory through working through a many-membered body. That's why I celebrate when Emily comes up and Jeremy comes up and Christian comes up and Jason comes up comes up and Rachel and Izzy comes to pray. I celebrate that because what God's doing in Truvine is not what he's doing through Josh Button. It's what he's doing through Truvine. It's what, it's what he's doing through all of us. And, and if, if we'll all walk in together, that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to come up and have a word of prophecy or get behind the podium. You're just as valuable being there worshiping your seat as you could. But if the Lord speaks, you're always, I'm always going to say here. Because a culture of offense will always choke out a culture of honor. But, but, but also, if you create a culture of honor, if you create a culture of honor in a place, in a space, in an atmosphere, in your family, in your church, you're going to find that more than not, more, more likely than not, when someone comes in with an offense, if you honor them, then they lose the, the edge of that offense. Like, why are you... You know, they can come in and just be, have, be flabbergasted and mad at the world and you honor them and sit down and break bread with them and listen to what they have to say. And before long, the offense is gone. I mean, it's like, it's, like the, it's like offense is the wicked witch of the West and honor is the bucket of water. And it's just, they're just waiting for somebody to pour it on them, you know. It just melts away. But these two, a culture of honor and a culture of offense, they stand, they, they stand in opposition to one another. And you can't live in both. You can't have both. It's going to be one or the other. You need to choose. Paul says, some things in this life we may never know the why, but there is a remedy for wounded souls. It's possible to live the Christ-centered life in the here and now. And he says, this is how you can do it. This is how you can do it. 
The first is to trust steadily. To have faith. Not just a blind faith that one day leads to the better. Instead, we must have a confidence and unshaken belief in the faithful one who promises that one day we will see clearly. Believing that one day we will see clearly means accepting the reality that right now we may not. It's, it, we need to accept the reality that we don't have all of the answers and that we don't have all of the pieces to the puzzle. And we're, we judge people and we judge situations based on a couple of pieces to the puzzle. We don't even see the whole picture yet. We need to be able to be comfortable saying, you know what, I don't see it all. I, I'm a pastor of a church and I don't see it all. Or I'm the this, I'm that. I'm the head of this household and I don't see it all. And when you do that, then it creates room and space for people to fall and not be judged, but to be helped back up. Everyone who's ever been offended has taken on a false identity, believed in a false reality, and have positioned themselves as if they knew everything that could be known about a giving situation. How many people have gotten mad at you because you did something, they assumed that you meant something else than you did, they're offended at you, and you have no clue what in the world even happened? All of us have had that happen. How many of you have put something on Facebook and then deleted it thinking, oh my God, if this one person reads it, they might think that I meant this and that's not really what I'm trying to say. You're laughing, which means I've done it. <laughs> We've all done that. You put something on social media or whatever, just like using social media because, you know, that's, that's God's favorite medium. How many people watch that show, God Friended Me? You do? It has nothing to do with the, the, what I'm talking about today. I just... It popped in my brain. He's not very active on social media. I think he, I think he reads more than he posts. <laughs> but yeah, have you ever posted something or done something? I, I, I have before. And it's not unlike me to offend people without knowing I've offended them. It happens more than I wish it would happen. I'm trying to get better at that. But I won't live in fear of saying things if the Lord puts them in my heart that somebody might get offended. I'm talking about a different thing. They've decided to become the judge and jury and even prosecutor. People that are offended align themselves more with the accuser than the redeemer. This must not be so in this body. Must not be so. Let it not be said of us that we act more like the accuser than the redeemer. What does the accuser do? Well, he did this, and she said this, and he did this, and she's this way, and he acts this way. How could he possibly get up there when he's done this? I can't believe she had the nerve to get up there and speak when I know what she was doing. That sounds more like the accuser. The Redeemer says, you're holy, you're perfect, you're righteous, not based on what you've done, but based on what he's done. And as we mature, we become like him. It's not just his appearing one day that makes us like him. It's our becoming like him that causes him to appear. That makes sense. It's God who searches the heart. Not one of us knows what's in the depths of everyone's heart. Sometimes we will never know people's why. And until such a time, we must take the first step on the staircase of honor. And that first step is to trust steadily. Lord, I don't know why this man is acting a fool. <laughs> Why is it that only women laughed when I said that one? Yeah, Christian too, but it was funny. I said men acting a fool and like 17 women busted out laughing. That's funny. 
I know you heard it, but this was just for the sake of the recording so people know that when I said he acting a fool, a bunch of women and Christian laughed. It's a, rev it's a revelation. Christian women laugh when I say that. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's to trust steadily. The second step in the staircase towards creating this culture of honor is to hope unswervingly. Hope is, according to Webster's Dictionary, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. That hope remains and is not weakened by circumstance. Probably, I would say, I would say probably my favorite movie of all movies. You've heard me talk about it multiple times. I'm going to talk about it again today. If I don't do good preaching the word, I can preach Shawshank Redemption. Because to me, it's one of the most powerful films that has ever been created. I thought about this recently. I am, I want to I preface what I'm getting ready to say with this so that I don't get tomatoes thrown at me. I'm a Marvel fan. I'm a DC fan. I like these movies. But I happened to make an observation a few weeks ago with my wife. And it's, Seth and I have been dialoguing back on Facebook Messenger. He's been writing song lyrics. We were coming home from Steve Rich's church, and, and the kids, Jacob and uh, Cameron and Jakin, and who else was in the car with us? Was it David? And we were talking about you know, some of the writers, and I, and I talk, mentioned Donnie, and I said, I told Cam, I said, one of the best writers in our church, in case you don't know, is that man right there, Seth Pierce. And he's been writing lyrics, and we've been dialoguing back and forth, and he's been like, it, it, he's like, if I don't send it, I might forget it, so I'm just sending them to you. And it's been great, and I ha but I, I brought that up to say this. Um, this generation, I, I'm not sure this generation understands what real good writing of a good script is. Because we have the greatest special effects that have ever been. And we live in a generation where, I mean, go back and watch the Superman of the 80s. I'm not kidding. And then you watch the stuff today that comes out. It's mind-blowing. But you don't even have to write a good script. It's just so over the top with special effects and all this that it, it can be like Aquaman. It can be the dumbest movie ever and people celebrate it. No, it wasn't dumb. It's fine. It's fine. But Shawshank Redemption has zero effects, and by the end of the movie, everybody that watches it, that engages, is probably pull, pushing back a tear. You remember those good movies that before there were special effects, that they had to be well written, they had to be well acted, and the, and the score had to be right, and they all had to fit together. And if they did, the, the movie would move you. Movies today don't, I mean, they're, they're good, and I like them. I'm going to go watch all of the DC and all of the Marvel. I have six kids. I don't have a choice. I'm, I'm, I'm married to this thing now. But I miss the good old movies, and one of my favorite was Shawshank Redemption. One of, the, one of the greatest lines, in case you haven't seen it, this man is wrongfully accused of killing uh, his wife and his wife's lover because he catches them together. He doesn't do it, but he, he, winds up, he winds up being convicted for it. He's a very intelligent man. He's a banker. And he, he, he meets up in prison with a guy that's been there that's also been put away probably for life. And, and, and they become friends. And one of them is black and one of them is white. And one of them is used to being a prisoner and the others used to live in a life of privilege. And now they're here together in this same place. And... Uh, in, it, the life of, I'm just, just going to read it from here so I can make sure that I rewrite. The life of prison um, for Red, which was played by Morgan Freeman, a wonderful actor, he's lost all hope. And he's accepted the fact that he's never going to live outside of the walls of his prison. Not only has he accepted the fact, there's one time that he mentions that the walls have become like a security. It's become a part of his identity. I know people in church that live in prison and their prison has become such a part of their identity that they're terrified to walk away from their chains. 
It's sad. It's sad because we want to liberate people, but people don't know what, it, what it's like to be liberated. They don't know what it feels like to walk in utter freedom. It's, if, if you even whisper the, the word freedom to some people or you whisper the word hope to some people, they shut you down immediately. And in this movie, when Andy Dufresne talks about hope, immediately the character Morgan Freeman plays, Red, says, don't you talk about that word in here. That's a dangerous word, my friend. Have you watched it? Have you seen the movie? They're sitting at a table. He said, it'll get you killed in here. You need to let go of those pipe dreams of being free. It's not going to happen. Hope is the vital foundation for all future plans and dreams. Without hope, there is no reason to, to believe that life can be better again. Hopeful people never give up on their quest to improve their life. Red's sense of possibility, though, is rekindled just by hanging around with his persistently constructive new friend. Which one are you in your relationships? Are you more like Red or more like Andy? Red's sense of possibility is rekindled just by hanging around with his persistently constructive new friend. Thanks to Andy's wit and boldness, the convicts get cold beer on a hot day. I just said beer in church. Don't leave. Lock the doors. Lock the doors. An expanded library collection and the elimination of various prison predators who previously had their way too many times. Who knows what new and interesting things can happen when Andy's around because his life is a metaphor of hope. Even prisoners can escape the inhumanity of their existence by maintaining a little hope. By the end of the movie, Red's outlook on life has changed completely and his heart beats again with possibility. And near the end of the movie, after he has been freed from a lifetime in prison, something that he thought was never going to happen, these are his final thoughts. He says, I, he thinks, I find I'm so excited I can barely sit or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. Andy has gone to Mexico and he's invited Red to come and visit with him and see him if he ever got free. And he says, I hope I can make it across the border. I hope I can see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it is in my dreams. I hope. Hope. Grabbing on to something, grabbing on to the possibility of something better and refusing to let go in spite of all circumstances. Finally, to climb to the pinnacle of Christian living in this life, to stand on the top of the mountain of honor, we must love extravagantly. Extravagant love means to love without restraint, to love without reason or the hope of reward. Love is not only a feeling but an action. And love is the only word that perfectly describes the character and nature of the heart of the Father. Love. The picture of love is Jesus hanging on a cross. How is it that we can love that extravagantly? Well, we can start by erasing the scoreboard. Stop keeping score. Love keeps no record of wrong. No record of wrongs other has done, others have done to us and no replaying the record of what wrongs we have done. Listen, regret is living in the past, anxiety is living in the future, but peace comes when we learn how to live in the now. Regret is living in the past, 
Anxiety is trying to live in the future, and peace comes when we live in the now. Jesus said to love your neighbor. Jesus says to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Loving others is, is, I'm sorry, is almost impossible for many people because they do not love themselves. Think about this. I said this spontaneously in worship about two years ago, and I went back and listened to it because it was so good that it changed my life. And the reason that I can say that is because it did not come originate from me. The, the Spirit spoke through me. Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourselves. But a lot of people don't love themselves, so they don't know how to love their neighbor. And until they learn to love themselves, they'll never love their neighbor. For some people, it's impossible to love themselves. They're stuck in the paradigm of comparison. Social media has, 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 has multiplied that exponentially. Comparison. What's the, what's the one meme that's put on Facebook? We, you're comparing your reality of your life to the highlights of someone else's life. And when you do that, you're going to live the rest of your life thinking that you're, you, you've not done enough or you've not got enough or you're not good enough. And it goes back to the core issue of being secure in your identity. The answer is to believe that you are forgiven and accepted by God. Not suggesting all behaviors are acceptable by God, but all people are. I love my children no matter what their behavior is. I love my children no matter what their behavior is. I may not approve of their behavior. I may have to correct them. And I may have to punish them because of their behavior. But I will never, ever say, you are not my son based on the behavior of one of my children. I can, if, if you think of the most heinous crime in the history of crimes, and if one of my children were to become a person that would perpetuate that crime, it would not cause them to stop being my son or my daughter. It could cause, cause incredible disappointment, obviously. It could cause a whole lot of pain and would need to be corrected. But it wouldn't, there's nothing they could do that would cause them not to be my children. Once you're settled in the reality that God is not keeping score... Once you're settled in the reality that God is not keeping score, love keeps no records of wrong. It would be okay to take in this 1 Corinthians 13, to take, the, to take our understanding of who God is and substitute just for the sake of understanding the name God for the name love. If love is patient, love is kind. God is patient, God is kind. If love keeps no records of wrong, then the nature of the Father, the nature is he keeps no records of wrongs. We think that God has this cosmic scoreboard and he's keeping score. And if we do enough good and it outweighs enough bad, one day we get a big reward. And I know where that comes from and I know where the, I know where the misunderstanding in Scripture is. It used to make me really mad when people... Because a lot of people like to argue. A lot of people want God to be mean because it makes them feel better about the fact that they are. I'm serious. I'm not trying to attack anybody. I'm telling you, I had to learn. it took me years and years and years to understand this. A lot of people need God to be mean because if he's not mean, well, first of all, I've believed a lie for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years because I've always thought that he was. It's just a false, it's a false, it's a false understanding of who he really is. He's not that way. He's not angry. He's not mad. He's not ticked off. He's none of those things. God is love. And God keeps no records of wrong. I shouldn't have to push this hard against that. Not in this church. 
it's funny. I should not have to push this hard, Canby. In this place, why would I have to push this hard for that? He's a good, good father. He really is. The song is good, but, it's, but he's better than the song. He keeps no records of wrong. Once we understand that Father's not keeping records of wrong, what I want you to do is to take your scoreboard, to, if it's a sheet of paper, I want you to crumple it up and throw it away and stop judging your life based on what you've done. Look, yes, we're, def we're defined by what God says we are and people know us by what we do, but you can change what you do. You're not a human do uh, doing, you're a human being. There are a whole lot of people who have changed their lives and, and they've gone on to, lead, to, to be, a, be a, 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 a success and they've been, um, they've been good for society. I mean, there are, there are a lot of people. You don't be defined by your moment. Be defined by what God says you are. And the way to start doing that is to take that scorecard that you've got in your pocket and throw it away. If, if, I were, if I were standing up here based on my ability to outweigh, for good to outweigh bad, I may not be up here. I'm finishing up. Forgive yourself. I really, really going to hit this hard. And love yourself extravagantly. That almost sounds weird to say. Love myself extravagantly. Yeah. You should love yourself. Then you'll be free and your overflowing cup of love will spill out on everyone around you. Now, William, if you'll come and help me out a little bit there on the keys, buddy, I would greatly appreciate that. You'll have to make sure that's turned up up there. For the next few minutes, I want every single person in here to take an assessment of your own life. And I'm not going to try to get you saved again. I'm going to try to get you free. I believe in salvation. I'm all for someone coming to the, to the knowledge and coming to it to say, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be the, you know, the Lord of my life. I'm for that. I'm not against that. And if you need that this morning, great. We want to pray with you. But more than that, what I want you to do is to walk in your true identity. To do that, I want you to take a self-assessment. What offense has kept me from fulfilling my call to love extravagantly? What offense has kept me from loving myself and others extravagantly? Maybe someone has said something. Maybe someone's done something. That person may very well be here. After considering if you have an offense against someone in this building, go to that person. <gasps> yes, go to that person. Jesus puts a higher premium on unity in his family than bringing him a gift. Don't miss this. He even says, if you have a gift that you bring to give me at the altar, and we do it every Sunday, we bring our worship, we bring our praise, we bring whatever it is because we really just want to get into the presence of God, and yet we have an offense against someone that's in the very building, what God is saying is, I don't want the gift, I want you to go make things right with your brother. Once that's right, then come give the gift and I'll take it. Well, why isn't the Lord moving the way I want him to move? Who have you offended or who are you offended by? It's as if the Lord sits here and says, look, don't bring me these gifts of worship. Don't bring me your gifts of adulation and adoration and praise until first you go make that thing right with your brother. 
The sister that you won't, there, you won't even talk to her. You have a problem with everything she does. You're always offended. And you want to bring me a gift? Here's the gift that I want. Go make that right. And then come and worship. And watch, because what it'll do is it's going to free her. It's going to free you too. And then, you know, the Father is seeking people that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You can't worship Him in truth if you're offended at someone in this place. I might have to play louder. It's real quiet in here right now for some reason. Well, I just thought coming to church was about, you know, I mean, they, they did it. It's all on. They, if they're the ones that said it. It was they're the ones that had the attitude. I'm coming here to worship my God. And I'm like, well, no, you're not. You have a problem, and that is not worship. That's emotionalism. Take it from a, take it someone that's been a worship leader for 20 plus years. It's not worship for you to come in here and cry and lift your hands to God when you're ticked off at the person that sits three seats from you at church. That's not worship. That's sloppy sentimentality. <laughs> I'm putting some plexiglass on this, some bulletproof glass on this thing this week. Well, I felt the presence of God. Well, did you hear his voice? Because if you had, he would have been telling you, go make that thing right. So this, 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 this offense starts as a splinter. It becomes a wedge, and before long, it'll split in half a relationship that I intended. So who has offended you? Who have you offended? Who is it that you won't speak to? Who is the person whose name is spoken and you cringe? Like, oh, I'm not messing with that person. I'm actually going to ask you if that person is here, to go to that person today, right now, in front of God and everybody and say, you know what, I got to fix this. Because we can't do this right if we don't do this right. And we're saying, God, thank you for the growth that's coming. And God, thank you for your glory that's coming. And states was going to be synonymous with the glory. And yet we don't have it right this way. That's not going to happen. So as William plays, Isaiah's turned this thing up a little bit. He may be able to turn it up up here too. I'm just trying to set the mood. Who's offended you or who you offended at? I'm asking you. For your sake, for their sake, and for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God in Statesville, go make that right. I don't care if it's been a week, a month, a year, ten years, a lifetime. Sit down, look at him in the face and say, I've wronged you here's how You're, you might even be surprised that people that come to you don't, don't be mad that somebody walks up to you that we've done this in the, in the past not exactly like this and people have come to me and told me they were offended at me and had been for years and I had zero clue I, I didn't know literally didn't know and I, you know, and I left I was okay when we left because we were able to talk together we prayed together we cried together and I left and like man I wish I'd have known I never even know this person was offended at me but I'm glad it ain't that way anymore don't be, don't be surprised if someone comes to talk to you. It doesn't mean that you're bad. It means we're trying to get things right. All right. So if that person's here, I want you to, I, I want to challenge you. As an act of worship, go and find that person and make it right. This is going to get real awkward because I'm just going to sit here quietly while you move. <laughs> 